You're listening to TFM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. Well, hello and welcome to TFM's local watering hole. I'm so excited to be here and uh, we we might just burst into song at any point in time here because it's so exciting. But with me, as she is every single week, Christy Morris. Ah. (laughs) That was terrible. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh man well we're gonna have so much fun this week i'm so excited uh, as we're gonna be talking about disenchanted and so we decided uh christy that it would be a great idea to pull in our friend scott to come and talk about uh the movie with us so welcome back scott my hair is so high and my dress is so low <laughs> <laughs> whoa whoa pull that up girl pull that up oh man Wickedly oh man good. this is it really yeah <laughs> <sighs> yeah, I'm the I'm the vi- I'm the villain of the story. What can I say? <laughs> well, this is going to be yes, great. because uh, actually I saw that Scott was live tweeting about it while I was also watching it, and I was like, you know what, you should just be part of this. I was very happy for that. I was very happy because I was pre gaming. We hadn't shown the boys the first one yet. Or at least at an age where they would actually like sit down and watch it. So mm-hmm. we did the same thing for Hocus Pocus, where we showed them the first one for the first time, put the toddler to bed, and then watched the second one on Disney Plus. Mm, okay, very nice, very nice. Well, before we get into everything, uh, huge thank you to everybody who listens. Thank you for uh, checking us out, and uh, you know this episode I think is going to be a fabulous one, but. Uh, but before we get into talking about Disenchanted, uh, make sure you're subscribed wherever you're listening. That way you'll get the podcast as soon as it drops. Of course, you can also find us all over the place uh, on social media. F- please follow us over at the 602 Club. We'd love to interact with you. Christy and I really enjoy when when people talk to us over there and follow us and share our shows on social media as well. Because I don't know if you know this, but the best way to grow a podcast is actually word of mouth. So your word of mouth, whether it's on social media or with your friends, makes all the difference. You can also help us out, of course, by giving us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Any of the podcatchers that allow you to rate a podcast, that makes a difference too. So do that for us as well. Uh, you can also find us online at trek.fm or on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. And there's a listeners-only discussion group on Facebook where you can talk to listeners from all over the world called the Babel Conference. And if you join that, we'd love to talk to you there as well. If you do like our shows, we would really appreciate it if you would go over to Patreon at patreon.com slash trek.fm and make sure you're supporting the network because it is only through listeners just like you that this network keeps coming to you each and every week. And in all honesty, we're definitely not where we'd like to be every week to make sure and every month to make sure that the network can keep coming to you 
ad-free as it is. So again, go to patreon.com slash trackfm and see how you can be part of the team. So, Scott, uh, you know, we... You just mentioned the idea that Disney has kind of been doing these different sequels to these long-standing movies like Hocus Pocus, which also came out. And now, of course, finally, after like so many years, we're getting a follow-up to Enchanted. And so I, I wanted to know for both of you, you know, this movie is really about what happens after after happily ever after and to me that really is an interesting thing because it is kind of the antithesis to most animated disney movies where everything just ends but that's not how life is (laughs) what are you talking about you get married and then nothing ever happens yes oh my god (laughs) this is true this is true It's funny, though, because while I was watching the movie, all I could think about was the Stephen Sondheim musical Into the Woods, because that's what act two of that musical is, is what happens after Happy Ever After. And then it was funny because then when we stopped the movie, Disney Plus recommended Into the Woods for me. And I was like, oh, I see how you're doing. Beam it into my brain. I get it. Nice. Yeah, I, I, I think kind of the same thing that they I love that they kept the tongue in cheek flavor of this. I guess I'd call it franchise at this point. No, not franchise, I guess series. Um, Yeah, I, I was a little surprised that 15 years later, we finally have a sequel, but um, interesting to see where they were going to go with it. And I like the premise, like you said, Scott, that was my favorite quote from the movie was the uh baby chipmunk saying what do you mean after there is nothing after you just get married and then nothing ever happens to you <laughs> well and and to me that is it's weird that disney would would kind of take this you know arc because all of the animated movies just end with people getting married and then they live quote unquote happily ever after and i think the the, the interesting part about this movie and, and the really nice part about this movie especially for kids that are going to be watching it is the realization that you know that's not where life ends right you know like just because you found the person that you want to spend the rest of your life with doesn't mean that life just stops or that everything is hunky dory and and like you don't have to worry about anything anymore well, let's be honest. A teenager would be my villain origin story, too. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, you know, this, in in all honesty, is, is about the fact that, you know, after you get married, when you have a family and you, you're in a marriage, like life is difficult. You know, I mean, all three of us are married and can attest to the fact that just because we got married didn't mean problems stopped happening. In fact, in all honesty, marriage just creates a whole new set of problems that are different than the ones you had when you were single, but you still have them. And so I really enjoyed the fact that this movie was dealing, I think, very intellectually, more honestly 
with us to say, yeah, after that is difficult. And, and, and especially, you know, I think the, the best part about this is, is that in some ways, Giselle represents people who grow up thinking that, yeah, I just get married and everything's going to be great, you know, and, and not realizing that, yeah, life comes with its own set of challenges after that fact, you know, and so you need to be ready for that. Um, and so I think this movie does something that very few movies in this genre, and especially for Disney, do, which is to say, you 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 got to be ready because you know if you just think that everything's going to be amazing and life's going to be all you know bouquets and roses and song choices of of dancing in the streets like that's just not how it's going to be and if that's the way you think it's going to be you're just going to end up on the street of lonelyville again because you're probably just going to end up divorced because life didn't live up to your expectations this movie i think in a very small way kind of helps reset a lot of your expectations which is good that's the thing too that i love so much about the first movie and then also this movie is that it really turns the typical Disney storyline on its head and says, A, that um, a relationship is a partnership. It's not just that the princess is, you know, everything's all about the princess and she gets whatever she wants and, um, you know, she meets the prince and then lives happily ever after. It's like, no, that it takes two people to make a relationship and to make a marriage and that it doesn't end once you get married and everything's fine, like you said. And I like that they're saying that it, basically two different ways of thinking that, you know, the, the traditional Disney movie is supposed to be like an escape where you feel better about things because that world ends in a fantasy way where everything is hunky-dory. But this makes you think about it differently and makes you look at the fact that maybe it doesn't in reality, but it's all about how you look at it. Which is interesting because it's, it's this, I'm not sure if it's a weird inverse, but if you think about the first movie, it was about Giselle helping the real world sort of rediscover some of that innocence mm -hmm. and love and romance while the rest of the world was trying to tell her, no, sweetie, that's not how the real world works. And, you know, like, life is hard, life is difficult. But it was life is hard, life is difficult in, like, the ultimate cynicism mm -hmm. of, of New York City as, it, as, a, as a cliche. This, and this movie comes around and goes, no. You no, know, that, that 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 talk they had in the first movie about it being hard and being work, they were right. They were harsh about it in the first movie, too harsh maybe. But no, you've got to learn a little. You you, you got to you got to learn to like temper those expectations a little bit, and it and it's and and I've seen people who didn't like the movie. Because they felt like Giselle should have grown past that wishing for that fairy tale life. And I don't know if I feel that 
was necessarily a criticism of the movie for me because I feel like she kind of fell back into that. I want my life to be like a fairy tale only because after 15 years, well, life got really hard. And I'll be honest, you get kids, you get multiple kids, and you start thinking sometimes in your dark day, in your dark hours, man, wasn't it nice when we didn't have them? <laughs> and then you see him again, you love him. But there, but I, I don't blame Giselle and the way they wrote a character in seeking comfort in that Andalasian type of life and thinking that that was going to be the answers to her. Basically, Giselle having a midlife crisis almost. No, I mean, I think you're absolutely right, Scott. And I was thinking as you were talking that, you know, the first movie is a really about her helping a disenchanted world rediscover enchantment. And in many ways, this movie is about helping a disenchanted Giselle rediscover enchantment. Yeah. Um, and and that it's it's not the same as it was specifically in Andalasia, but that doesn't mean that enchantment actually isn't here. You know, it is about your perspective, you know, um, or as Obi-Wan Kenobi would say, from a certain point of view. And, and so, no, I, I 100% agree with you guys. I mean, and, and that's what I think, you know, makes this movie a good follow-up to the the first movie because we do have this character going through a different type of metamorphosis in this movie than we did the first movie, which is really important because you don't want the just the same movie again. And one of the things that you guys were talking about, and I think this kind of speaks to that, and I love that this is a part of the movie, is that, you know, everybody thinks the grass is greener somewhere else, right? Whether it's Andalasia or, you know, wherever. You, you, you think that it's, if I just had insert whatever, I, we'd be happy, you know? Um, and I think that this really is a movie about seeing yourself and who you are and where you are and that it isn't just about needing more, but it's about needing more perspective. Yeah, absolutely. I think that obviously they kind of tell that from this, the get-go because she decides that if they move to Monroeville, they'll lose all of the problems that are just associated with the big city. You know, that that means that her stepdaughter will be happier because she has less to worry about and they'll have more time to take things slow and maybe she'll be able to spend more time really focusing on making their home a little nicer and they'll have more space because they're out in the country and it's not going to be high density apartment buildings. But she finds out exactly what you're saying, Matt, where it doesn't matter where you move to if the problems are with the people living inside the place you're moving to. You just take the problems somewhere else. So you're just ignoring them thinking the scenery will make it better and it's not. She even has a really beautiful song lyric where she says, all I did was changed where I would fail. 
Oh. It, yeah, it, in uh, in that song, Fairy Tale Life, right before she makes the wish, that's actually one of her lyrics. As she comes to the realization that she didn't fix anything, she just changed the scenery where the same problems were ha- going to happen. Wow, I didn't catch that before. <laughs> I've been listening to the soundtrack on repeat for the past couple of days. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Well, and I think that's that's so telling too, Scout, because when you think about the movie then as well, is that she's mentioning the fact that the problem is not where she is. It's her. Or as Taylor Swift would say, hi, it's me. I'm the problem. It's me. You know? And... But Giselle doesn't doesn't get it to the point where she doesn't realize that making the wish is not going to make things better. That's not the answer. You know, the answer is not the fact that, oh, if I could just wave a magic wand, everything would be fine. Because, Christy, you, I think, correctly pinpointed it, which is wherever you go, there you are. You just take your crap with you. And so, but changing the scenery doesn't make it better. And what she does in many ways is just an even more elaborate version of changing the scenery. And in a way that I think even further demonstrates that you can't, it's not the outward that matters, it's the inward. And that's a really, I think, important message i think for a disney film as well which is it doesn't matter what's going on on the outside or these outside forces or your circumstances it's about you and how like what your feeling is and and you know how you're approaching it and again your perspective makes all the difference and so i just really think that that's really important uh for uh, this movie and it again it just I give Disney credit for creating a film which is really in many ways I get I, it is the antithesis to every other message in every other Disney movie which is really surprising to me there was another movie and I'm and I'm really I'm grasping at it because as you've been as you've been talking Matt I've been thinking about I feel like Disney has done this before where they or maybe it was Pixar where they made a movie about the fact that of it was soul. That was it. Where when you sacrifice everything for your dream and you've yep. you've yep. chased your dream so hard and you're told that's what you're supposed to do. But then you realize yep. that by sacrificing everything for this singular purpose you've kind of lost the reason for living life in the first place. So I so I agree I like it when they when they subvert the the cliche message and it's also very telling when people don't like it when they subvert the cliche message cuz it's like no that's life. You know <laughs> I'm I'm sorry. I love how you said wave a magic wand because it's literally what she does. But then notice she becomes yep. the villain of her own story. Mhm. Which is specifically, if wishes came true, which I love that you went there, Scott, and and what a great uh, representation of, of pulling from something else that Disney has put out within the last couple of years, Soul, because 
This movie again repudiates the Disney message of a dream is your wish your mm-hmm. heart makes. Like everything you hear is about follow your heart and and all your dreams will come true. And what we see here is that Giselle's wishes actually ruin all the good she has. Her heart's desire for the quote unquote fairy tale life almost destroys all of reality. So maybe her heart is more deceitful and wicked than it is good and can't necessarily be trusted implicitly. Maybe our heart isn't always right, which is, again, a message that's completely different than every Disney movie out there. Well, there's a reason why there is literally a cliche called the Disney I Want song, because every Disney movie has it. There's always the I Want Mm. song, and fairy tale life is Giselle's I Want song. Actually, there's two I Want songs in this movie because Morgan gets one because Perfect is basically her uh, Disney I Want song that kind of looks a little bit like Belle from Beauty and the Beast. Because that's another thing this movie does really great is pay great homages to Disney movies throughout. Yeah, it does. Just like the first one did. And here doesn't feel quite as much of a poking fun tone as much as just a genuine homage in a positive way. Like, I don't know if you even noticed the references to Pocahontas. I did not get the Pocahontas, which is great because Stephen Schwartz wrote the music for Pocahontas. He does the lyrics for Mm -hmm. Disenchanted. What was the Pocahontas reference? Because I got a Cinderella and a Little Mermaid one. Yeah, the Pocahontas was the willow, which is the memory tree. And during the song about love, power, it's the swirling multicolored leaves. It's very similar to Colors of the Wind. Yep. All the mm-hmm. all the Colors of the Wind. Um, yeah. But yeah, the Little Mermaid oh. one was funny with the splash behind her. <laughs> In the even the exact yeah. pose, she's like she's doing the pose. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I too like the direction that you both were going, and and Matt, when you were saying about the way that it makes you think about Giselle's heart, and like maybe you're following your heart isn't always the way to be trusted. I also looked at it as a way of saying that she wished for a fairy tale life. Well, if you look at the definition of the word fairy tale, if you look at the way it's been used with like Grimm's fairy tales, everything in a fairy tale isn't perfect and beautiful and lovely. If it's Grimm's fairy tales, (laughs) there's some really horrible things that happen sometimes, you know, or there's villains, you know, It, it doesn't mean that everything is perfect. So I looked at it that way as well of like in her song, she says there's ogres and um, magic and things. And so it's like, it's not just going to the ball and being happy, go lucky every day. There's other things to a fairy tale that aren't all good. Well, even fairies in general, I mean, those are, those are wicked little creatures. Right. Yeah. Like the fae. (laughs) Yeah, the Fae. Yeah, exactly. It's like these aren't good things. <laughs> so, I and I and it was really interesting because I I was the one pointing out to my family, like when she said, "I want a fairy tale life," and when the clock tower came into effect and she started turning evil, and they were like, "What's going on?" I said, "Well, think about it. What is she?" And my family kind of looked at me and went, "She's a stepmother." Mm-hmm. 
I mean, what else are stepmothers in fairy tales? Except for wickedly horrible human beings. Well, and did we all possibly pick up on it at the same time where um, the first time that Morgan says stepmother to her and she looks so hurt, I immediately realized that they had a tower on their house. And I was like, oh, my God, it's Cinderella. (laughs) Oh, it's Cinderella. It's Sleeping Beauty. It's Snow White. What my kids... Snow White. Oh, or what my kids did was when she, when Morgan tries to escape out a window, they're like, "Oh, it's like sleeping. It's like Rapunzel. Yep. She's in her tower. She just didn't have the hair." Well, there's also, I think, and this is something that was really interesting to me was that, and Scott, I love that you brought up Soul, but you know, her holding on to this idea is the very thing that that begins to turn her into basically that evil stepmother, right? She's holding on so tightly to this desire that she's excluding everything else as if everything else is not important. And which is the message of the movie, right? That you can't forget about all the little day things that make up the, the beauty of an enchanted life. And again, it's about your perspective in those things to which helps you be able to see that. But if you're only holding on to and you can only see what you don't have and your and your desire out there in front of you that you're constantly chasing, which what she wants is a perfect life. And unfortunately, she lives in the real world where there is no such thing as perfection. But what's really interesting is that even when... You know, we get Nancy and Edward coming back. They don't have a perfect life, right? Like, yes, there's there's things in their world that, that they're different, but it's not perfect. And again, she has this idealized version of reality that is screwing with actual reality. And it's her abdication of reality that is hurting her reality. And I think that that's a really important thing is that we have to deal with the real as it is. You know, it, it, it's it's almost like, you know, the, the question of the matrix, right? Do you want the facade or do you want the real? And as much as the real can hurt sometimes, isn't it better because you know at least that it's real? And that's kind of, I think in a very candy-coated way, almost what this movie is 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 getting at. I don't, because I don't know what you're talking about, Matt. I want to eat the steak. I, I just, I just <laughs> you, want you to, would be. I just would want be. to eat the steak. <laughs> However, what you're talking about is even, once again, why I love Alan Minkin and Stephen Schwartz so much, is listen to the bookend songs of the movie because they're both called Even More Enchanted. That's the name of the opening number with Giselle as they're moving to Monroeville. It's the name of the finale at the end, but you listen to the lyrics, and you, when you talk about her perspective changing, you hear it in what she's considering an even more enchanted life. Because her perspective has been altered by the events of the movie, and you hear it in the lyrics, even though she's singing the exact same melody with the exact same mentality. But what is being considered the even more enchanted life 
has been changed by her experience. Because she gains that new perspective, it changes what she thinks it means to have an enchanted life. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, that's that's such a great point, Scott. And, and I think, you know, we've kind of been uh, dancing around it, but, you know, the answer that the movie comes up with is that there is this, the power of memory and the the way in which Giselle can be brought back is to be reminded that it is these little moments in life that make it worth living, that even in the hardest days, there are those little things that are these little enchanted moments. And... Makes me think of another musical, Some Enchanted Evening. <laughs> um, but that's that's kind of what we're getting at, right? And, and that these little moments are the reminder that love has power. And it's, it's not about power. It's the power of self-sacrificial love relationships that actually makes love worth oh, oh, come life on. worth living. You did not bust down to Huey Lewis in the news and I'm disappointed in you because it was about the power of love. <laughs> <Dun>. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Um, but yeah, but I mean, you know, the, because there is either the, the, the will and the might to, con- c- to try and dominate and control your life, right? Uh, and to force it into your desire or there is the self-sacrificial love of relationships reciprocal love relationships that makes life worth living and i just really appreciate that we're kind of seeing that that disenchantment ruins what was once enchanted because we lose all gratitude for the blessings that we do have and we focus on what we don't have. And there's something just so beautiful about that because in many ways, I just, to me, this whole movie was really preaching at the world that we're in in a way that I think is so important and so powerful because we're all just so focused on getting what we want. And it's no wonder that our world is just so unhappy, that is so unjoyful, that is, you know, so lost. Um, and this movie is is completely against all of those things. Well, and they even show, speaking of the lack of self-sacrifice that Giselle has for a while in the middle of the movie, if you pay attention to, you see that she finds three random women to go take care of her infant child which is like why should you trust those people to take care of your baby um because they're fairies yeah exactly well you know all fairies are good like we just said before right you know just like sleeping beauty (laughs) yeah um so that was pawning off her child on someone else so she could do what she wanted and then also she got rid of morgan any way she could so that she could focus on herself and then even her husband at that point he of course chooses on his own to go look for morgan but she didn't even have any concern about what happened to morgan you know 
initially it seemed like she sent her back to Andalasia genuinely to help them figure this out. But then it immediately seemed like it was all a ploy to get her out of the way. And then when he asks, where's Morgan? She just brushes it off. Like, I don't know. And I don't care. And he's like, well, she's also my daughter. So I'm going to go find her. (laughs) So you do see all of these trends as well, where she's becoming more and more selfish. And also looking at, like you said, Scott, all of her wants versus what's best for their family or what are things that they need. It was just more and more me, me, me. I want, I want, I want. And I'll push everyone out of the way to get it. Well, I mean, it it really reminds me of the idea of that so much of our world has really turned relationships into just this consumeristic mentality uh, that we take advantage of each other uh, and... You know, um, I think uh, it's interesting. I just saw the movie The Menu, um, and that movie has much of the same thing. But it just this this movie felt like that in in many ways. Where Christy, you pointing out all those places where I think she's legitimately Giselle is legitimately just taking advantage of people as if she's like choosing from a menu. And then discarding people like dirty napkins, you know, mm-hmm. like, and in all honesty, doesn't our world tell us that we should just pursue whatever we want? Because that's really kind of all that's ma- that matters. And, you know, if a little human sacrifice is necessary to get that, well, we'll tolerate that, right? And and that's exactly what she's doing. She's sacrificing hu- human relationship here. To get what she wants. And I think there's just something so sad about that. But, you know, I appreciate the movie is willing to go to that point um, before, you know, we help her see that what she's been missing it. That she's had the enchanted life the whole time. Um, she's just disenchanted that enchantment by refusing to see it. Mm -hmm. And that causes her to have, I would say, a disenchanted perspective. Um, I'm, so I'm really interested to ask both of you about this. So, and maybe this could possibly be the case because I'm actually a huge Patrick Dempsey fan. But how did you feel about his role in this film? I felt like he was underutilized for the most of it because I guess because so much of the first movie was about his transformation that it seemed like he didn't really fit in the story they were telling in this movie, which is also interesting that when you look at the soundtrack album, he has another song. They got cut, and it's actually on the soundtrack. Yeah, there's two cut songs uh, that are demos, which is funny because normally when you think of a demo song on a sound on a like on a musical album, it's usually like the composers, you know, banging on the keyboard, kind of singing the song. And these are like fully produced numbers with all the actors. The only difference is they have 
synthesizers instead of the full orchestra playing the music behind them. But there's a song on this soundtrack that was cut called Hard Times for Heroes. And it's obviously Sleeping Beauty's Prince, the the Huntsman from Snow White, and Mulan. And they're talking about how, for different reasons, why it's hard for them. Like, there's no place for them anymore in the world for being a hero. Even Mulan jokes about how she used to be special because she was a woman warrior. And now, well, they're kind of everywhere now. So I'm not special anymore. And Dempsey's Robert joins in. It's the three people who sing. It's the three villagers who sing the beginning of Perfect with Morgan. They, so they all represent heroes in this song. And it's the idea of what it's like to be. I think if you took Mulan of it, it's kind of like how hard it is to kind of be a guy. You know, you know, where you're like, we used to be heroes. You know, we used to be able to like ride on all horses. And now there's really not much left for us to do these days. You know, it's it's kind of it's kind of the mentality of the song. And, and it, it kind of almost matches what I feel about Robert in this movie is like he really doesn't have a place in this movie, <laughs> really, because it's not about him. Because it, it's really more about that mother daughter relationship in this movie. And so it's I I feel like it kind of perfectly encapsulates what Patrick Dempsey has or doesn't have in this film. Yeah, actually, I'm glad that you brought that up, too, about it being a a mother daughter relationship, Scott, because if you think about it, on the one hand, it's nice sometimes in the ways that they are comparing it with the story of Cinderella with the, the stepmother and the. Um, you know, Cinderella and the Wicked Stepsisters kind of thing. But if you think about how that story originally went, Cinderella's father really wasn't in the picture. So it's kind of a disservice then to compare it too much to Cinderella, because then why do you need Patrick Dempsey in this movie? You know, I think maybe they started off well going that direction and then unfortunately got themselves into a hole they couldn't get out of which is what to do with him now um and it sucks because i also love patrick dempsey as an actor i loved the direction of the first movie and really having it all about giselle saving him um and then here it really feels like he's trying to find his place in the world now that they've moved you know is he still going to be able to do what he feels is his calling in life and be a lawyer, or is he going to have to figure it out and do something else? Um, And I think they honestly could have done it better by having him help her figure out her relationship with Morgan because she is technically Morgan's stepmother. He was married before and had Morgan with someone else. So he would be the person that knows her best and be able to also offer the real point of view about teenagers are petulant and um, difficult sometimes because they're just going through a lot. I mean, even the best behaved kid as a teenager is still going to be difficult sometimes because it's just that age in life is difficult. So, yeah, I think it's a missed opportunity that they really could have had him be much more part of the picture. But you bring up a great point, Christy, in that, but look at those old fairy tales. The fathers are notoriously absent or absentee mm-hmm. 
in those stories. Because why are there stepmothers? Because the father married somebody else, and then what did the father do? Like, that's always been a question. So it's it's almost like we're... We hate it because Dempsey could have been a bigger part of this movie. But yet, if the movie's going to follow the fairy tale structure that it's following, it kind of did the right thing to him by making him kind of not present. Mm -hmm. Because that's what the fathers were in those stories. Yeah. So, I'm really glad, Scott, that you brought up the idea of the, the deleted song that they didn't use. Because it actually hit on something that I felt watching the movie was that, and I'm so, again, this movie is so counter to everything that, you know, Disney kind of does for the most part these days. And so it clearly shows they were definitely trying to think be, and and I wonder, they just made him cut the song and everything because it's too counter and it's too pinpoint, which is to say, if women do everything, what's the point of having a man anyway? Like, what is the point of us? Like, if, if, we, if we have nothing to do and we're not really there to help and be a partner for you, like, wh- why are we here? To reproduce. That's and, it. That's all you're good and, for. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that was actually something that I think the movie does. You can feel the tension there, right? That. This this character legitimately has nothing to do and is just kind of aimlessly wandering around trying to find, his, I guess, find my purpose. And because his purpose is apparently not there to be to help, you know, the woman that's his wife, you know, and be a partner to her and be a help to her when she needs help, you know, and, and which is, you know. Scott and Christy, you both know you're both married. That's what true marriage actually is. Like we lean on one another in times of difficulty because there are going to be times where I'm going to be the weak one. My wife is going to be the stronger one. And there are going to be times when I'm the stronger one and my wife's going to be the weak one, right? It's a partnership. And I I feel, I think this movie does a real disservice to itself because the first movie was about Giselle helping enchant Morgan and Robert's world. This movie should have been about Robert and Morgan helping re-enchant Giselle's world. And it would have made a perfect mirror for the other movie. Um, because she helps quote-unquote, save them in the first movie. And it would have been nice if it had been father and daughter helping save her this time. Mm-hmm. And they... they It's like it's almost there, but they don't actually... Like, I didn't understand why Robert wasn't the one to help send Morgan to Andalasia instead of it being Giselle. Because in the end... Giselle herself is the one that realizes that she has the problem and basically fixes the problem for herself by sending Morgan there. So again, you're you're cutting Robert out of anything important to do in the film. And it seemed like a very easy fix to me to make him more important to the movie 
um, than just being, you know, some token prize she wins at the end, which is one of the reasons that I love Sleeping Beauty because the movie is actually really about the prince. It's not about Sleeping Beauty. He's not just some, you know, person that, you know, really has no part in the film. Like, And that's where I felt like they should have mimicked Sleeping Beauty in this movie more than they they did, you know, Cinderella. Because Dempsey is there. He's a star. Give the guy something to do and 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 make him more a part of the film. And if there's anything that the movie really fails at, it's that. And it, it for all the good that we've talked about with it, that's something that really frustrated the heck out of me. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, I absolutely see that. And, and too, like, not to get too far down the rabbit hole, but also that he has some very valid concerns as well as a character um, that don't get recognized. You know, like you said, and we were kind of all dancing around that he has a role in the relationship, but Giselle is just letting it go and burying that to build herself up because she has all of these wants as the evil side of her or whatever, um, and taking away any agency that he has and any role in making decisions for the family. Um, and, you know, even though he does come back in the end and they sort things out, you still are kind of left feeling like, but he didn't get anything different than before. It was just suddenly that the wish had gone away. Yeah, I mean, he does get the fact that he opens a small practice there. Yeah. You know, and I think that's great and everything. But I do think you're raising a great point, which is the fact that, again, this is not a partnership like a true marriage is supposed to be. Giselle is the one making all of the decisions, and he's just supporting her, which I think is loving and great or whatever. But, like... There's no thought as to what he might want. They don't or, plan them you know, together. Exactly. Yeah. Hundred percent. Yep. Uh so Scott, you've mentioned uh the songs frequently here. Um and of course, you know, this movie, uh, like the first one, uh, is very much a revolving around the the songs that we get. And so I'm I'm very fascinated to see um what both of you think of the songs here uh in the film and, and how they end up working for you. Well, it's interesting for me in that when the when I was first watching the movie, I was a little underwhelmed by the songs. So much so that I thought, oh, they must have gotten different people to write the songs. Uh, until they got to the villain song. And then I enjoyed the hell out of that. Because I love a good Disney villain song. And then I, I go to the credits. It's like, nope. Music by Alan Menken, lyrics by Stephen Schwartz. I was like, oh, it's the exact same duo that did the first movie. And, of course, they're practically, since the Disney renaissance, they're practically Disney royalty as far as songwriters are concerned. But I will say that when I downloaded the soundtrack album and I've been listening to the songs, it's weird to say that I have found a loving appreciation of the songs more listening to them in isolation as a soundtrack than I did the first time watching them in the movie. And I don't know why that's the case. 
Because another thing I really enjoy about this movie's soundtrack versus the first movie is there's almost double or triple the amount of songs in it that there were in the first movie, and they get spread around more, where almost every major cast member gets a chance to sing. I mean, one of the grave injustices of the first movie is you put Idina Mazel in a movie and you don't let her sing? Like, what the heck was that in the first movie? So the fact that everyone kind of gets at least a, a, a song, you know, the new actress they cast as Morgan gets a couple of numbers. Amy Adams, of course, gets all the numbers because she's Amy Adams. But even Patrick Dempsey gets to sing a little bit and Idina Mazel gets a number or two. So... It's weird how my how my feelings about the songs have kind of changed as I've just listened to the songs themselves, not while watching the movie. And I also have a vote that Batter should now become like a instant Disney classic as far as villain songs is concerned, because I love that freaking duet so much. <laughs> <laughs> so don't hate me, um, but I... I do agree with you about it being a little underwhelming compared to the music from the first movie. Surprisingly, even though it's still Minkin and Schwartz working on the music, um, I didn't like Batter as a song because here's my issue with it. At times, it felt like they were trying to cram too many words into one stanza. And that's what made me kind of annoyed with it. If they had limited the word count a little bit um i think it would have made it better and then uh i'll get to more about it later but i didn't love maya rudolph as a villain i felt like susan sarandon was much more of a villain actress than maya rudolph so it, that's why i kind of had issue with and, and didn't really get into that song and the two of them with the back and forth it just it didn't feel as sinister to me um, as I, as it should have been. Um, but I did love some of the others. I really thought fairy tale life in the different ways that they weave it in when it's before and after the wish and things like that was interesting. Um, and the, um, even more enchanted song was really pretty. Um, but overall I would say I, I like the music from the first movie a lot better. And, um, Actually, the song That's How You Know is always stuck in my head. <laughs> so it's it's not Preach. that they're not good songwriters. I mean, obviously, Minkin's been around a long time and done so many movies that we love. So, yeah, I don't know why this was so different in kind of a bad way for me, but I just wasn't as thrilled with it song-wise. You know, I, it's really interesting hearing both of you because I I do think that for myself the coming away from it the only the only song that really stood out was Adina Menzel's Love Power part of that it's Adina Menzel she you know sang her heart out uh, and she's an incredible singer um, and so but I'd be really interested to do what you've done, Scott. I have the soundtrack. I just haven't had a chance to sit down and really listen to it. I've been too busy. Uh, and that's, you know, and I love doing that. That's one of my favorite, that's one of actually my favorite things to do. 
um, is, is to listen to, uh, the soundtrack. And so, but Christy, something you mentioned that I thought was great actually is the way in which I I did feel like a lot of the songs were trying to cram too many words into too quick a succession, um, and a pace in the song, uh, and a tempo is what you would call it. Uh, and, and that kind of, I think that lost something. So, um, but I'd be interested to go back and listen to it and, and see how it went. It wasn't an attraction necessarily, but the problem was is that, you know, the songs in the first movie were brilliant and fantastic. Very catchy, really well done, uh, perfectly placed. Everything about them worked. And this movie... I didn't quite feel that, um, and so I'd be interested, one, to watch the movie again, two, to listen to the soundtrack and, and see how that works out, but um, yeah, I think the other interesting thing about the first movie, too, is that, like you said, Scott, there are less songs, um, and some of the songs... There's practically just three. Yeah. yeah. There's really just three in the first movie. Hmm. And... You know, the the other one, the the one I'm really thinking of uh, is when they're, you know, where they're doing the dance there at the end and everything and, um, you know, at the ball. And that's not any of them singing. It's a singer singing, you know, and I think so there's there's that as well. So, yeah. But again, it's not a huge detraction from the film. I just wish that the I to me that the songs had stood out more. Um, Chrissy, you mentioned, you know, the fact that we have old and new characters here in, in the movie. Um, and so just interested to hear from both of you, which ones stood out to you that you liked that were new or old or, you know, something you would have liked to see more of. I enjoyed, uh, cause I just love the actress. I, I love having Yvonne Nicole Brown. And then I can never remember her name, but the actress who played the counselor in Glee, <laughs> but having them as like the little, uh, Hinch women. Oh, Jamie Mays. Rem- yes, yes. Having them as a little hinch women for Maya Rudolph, I really enjoyed because it reminded me of the stepsisters in the Rogers and Hammerstein version of Cinderella. Oh, like yes. I was waiting for yeah, th- yeah. I was waiting for them to have like a little evil duet, kind of like Stepsisters Lament mm-hmm. from that musical. And I thought they played that role well, and, like, right before Batter happens, and uh, and Giselle shows up, and Ruby goes, or have a dance-off, and Yvonne, Yvonne uh, just without a beat, says, see what I have to work with? Like, their timing was so great. I really, I mean, when you get hench people, you usually get two. You usually get one that's really dumb and one that's really smart. It's a cliche, but I enjoy it. And having the two of them play off each other was just, it was very enjoyable. Yeah, it felt like you had two similar styles of comedian playing together in those kind of roles. And I I do think that the casting for them was great. Um, I also loved Yvette Nicole Brown. Um, I've known her from Community. And so yes. seeing her here, I was like, oh, okay, okay, I'm in. Um, and then I don't remember where else I had seen Jamie Mays before, but I love her 
very um like dainty mannerisms and stuff and then still doing things that were very as a character very dumb um and having her you know pay for them by turning into a toad or both of them turning into toads uh was really cute i i have to say again like i I love maya rudolph but i immediately think of her in a comedian role i think of bridesmaids when i look at maya rudolph not a villain and I want her to be able to branch out of that more, but it just didn't feel like I could take her seriously as a deeply sinister villain, even though some of the things she was doing toward the end were, um, she wasn't threatening enough to me. So how did you feel about her? I, you know what? It was weird because, I mean, I didn't feel like she had to be like Susan Sarandon level of evil, because I think the true villain of the movie was Giselle. Yeah. Like Giselle. And, and that's almost like the point of their conflict and why I like batter so much is the fact that it's like, no, there's not two villains in this story. It's me. It, it, it's both of them thinking they're the villain of the story only for it to turn out. No, Giselle really is the real villain of the story. So I, I just saw Maya Rudolph being what she was, which was that lady in that little suburban community who like runs everything because her family's been there forever. And I didn't see her as having to be truly mm. evil because she wasn't the true evil. Okay. So it didn't bother me at all. And actually, I'm also very impressed with her singing voice. I was like, wow, I didn't know you could sing, lady. And that's and I was and that's a fun thing for me when actors I didn't know who could sing like blow me away. It's kind of like what Amy Adams and James Marsden did in the first movie. It was like, I didn't know either one of y'all could sing and dang, y'all have mm-hmm. got voices. Well, and and I think what's interesting about Maya Rudolph's character here in Giselle is that honestly they're two sides of the same coin like they really are trying to do the same thing you know she's Malvina is trying to control her world to get what she wants right and Giselle is trying to do the exact same thing so when they're going back and forth with their villain song saying which one is badder, I mean, they're really actually the same character. Hmm. They're just mere versions of one another. And and so I think that's what makes her kind of work in this film is like you said, Scott, the main villain is actually Giselle. It's Giselle's selfishness. It's Giselle's desire for perfection. It's Giselle's desire for the fairy tale. It's, Giselle's heart leading her in a completely wrong place, you know? Um, and so I, I I thought that that part really worked for me. So I didn't have a problem with that at all. The, the, I think the person that surprised me the most was, uh, you know, they didn't have Rachel Covey back um, from the first movie who played the daughter and they had Gabriella Baldacino come in and fill that role partly because... Rachel is not really an actress anymore. She she's been doing other things. She's a composer uh and a film writer and uh playwright. So 
she's also she's still in the movie though. Yes, she is in the movie, which is great. Mm-hmm. Um, but in two, she's about four years older uh, than Gabriella as well, and Gabriella sings. Um, and so, which is interesting because my wife and her are like, she looks exactly the same. That's what I thought. Like, I know, they look right? So much <laughs> like each They look like they could be sisters. So, I mean, they want perfect casting. And I thought she did a phenomenal job. Her singing voice is beautiful. She's beautiful as well. And I think all of that really worked. So, well done with the casting for her because, in all honesty, if she doesn't work in this movie, this movie is definitely sunk, and I thought she well, was she's great. not she she's not a petulant teenager. I mean, she she's got some petulantness, but they didn't go like hardcore. Oh my god, I want to strangle you, teenager! Like they could have. No, they still no. make her likable enough that you're like, I-, I see where you're coming from. You make some bad choices, but. I get where you're coming from. And and this and this may seem weird coming from me, but I want to just say it in a way that I mean it as a compliment that when they went to go ta- cast a teenage daughter, they didn't go and cast some anorexic twig as the daughter like Gabrielle is a beautiful young lady who looks like a real person that you know like a real teenage girl and doesn't look like this Hollywood image of what a teenage girl looks like. And it's weird that I noticed that, but it just, it meant something to me that they, they went against Hollywood type when casting the teenage daughter. No, that's a really good point that it, she is realistic looking in the sense of she actually has some shape to her and isn't, um, like you said, the the idealized version of what we're shown a lot of times to be the ideal thing that teenage girls would want to look like. Like it's not a mean girls kind of look. It's a this is the average American teenage girl, and that's okay. Um, so I'm really glad that you did notice that and brought that up. And and I wonder if part of that too. Um, I know you only have sons, but being a parent and Matt and I aren't yet that that maybe that's something that parents do think about a lot is like, does my child have a healthy body image? Yes. I mean, I don't have daughters, but I've been a teacher Mm -hmm. long enough that that is such an issue that I do like I maybe am just hypersensitive to it. And so I recognize it when whether it's intentional or not, I still take note of it. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I'm kind of glad that they didn't go as far as the original Cinderella did with that kind of piece of the story, because that definitely was part of it before was attacking Cinderella's appearance and saying, you're not attractive enough to be able to get the prince. He's never going to notice you over us, you know, putting her down physically. And so I'm I'm glad that they didn't go that route here and are really trying to protect teenage girls in that sense no i agree with both of you there I, and i i scott i think that's an excellent point and, and and again i think that's something that is really important in today's world and it's, it's it's unfortunate that we even have to think about that the idea of creating healthy body image like that that you know being healthy is important right 
Um, so, you know, I, I think the the cast is great. Um, you know, the fact that they were able to bring pretty much everybody back other than what we talked about with wanting Dempsey to do more. I mean, even the fact that he sang in this one, he's not a singer. You know, it's obviously no, he's, he's, not. he's not a singer, no. but the fact that he tried, no. uh, yeah. you know, I thought was great. And so, you know, I'm, all in all, I'm so interested as, as we've talked through all this as to where both of you are going to end up landing for your ratings with Disenchanted. Well, I can go ahead and tell that anyone who's looked at my letterbox can say that I gave Disenchanted uh, three and a half out of five wishing wands, uh, which actually only puts it about one one full star below where I put the first movie, because when it was all said and done with, was I entertained by the movie? Yes. Did I think it was a good time? Was it fun family magic? Yes. And could I tell that this was not done for a theatrical release? Could I tell that this was done for a streaming uh, a streaming service? You know, almost like what Disney used to do in the 90s where a lot of those direct-to-video sequels of the theatrical movies? Mm-hmm. Yes. But they got all the original cast back. They told an interesting story 15 years later. I got some fun songs out of it. I, I'm not going to I, I, I'm not going to throw the movie under the bus for things that I, I, I don't know where they call them production. I know they were filming this during COVID. Uh, there's so many things, but it's like, but overall, did I enjoy the movie? Did I have a good time? Did it? It didn't ruin the first movie for me or any BS like that. So that's where I kind of land on the movie. And I and I've told people online who've asked me, it's worth your time. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's absolutely fair. And you know, it's funny you've said before you and I have some very similar mannerisms, Scott, because we have similar ratings. Uh, I also give this a three and a half out of five vicious peasants because i had to give a call out to (laughs) james marsden at um calling the children little peasants um and having him back was so great as well it there was a lot to still enjoy here even though it's not perfect and even though it doesn't quite stack up for me as well as the first movie um it has a great message and I think is still valid and does kind of break my usual prediction that I don't like a lot of sequels. Um, I think it's still pretty good. I think it's worth watching. And, um, you know, my niece and nephew that are eight and 10 would love it. So yeah, I, I think it's still a good movie. It's just that it's not five star movie. I'm going to give this, and this is really interesting because I, I, I did, I think really slam it when we were talking about Dempsey and his part in the film. But, you know, I, I think the thematic elements here are just so strong. I'm giving this four out of five love powers uh, because it is, I think, just a great film. And, and it's a perfect uh, film, I think, just to watch with the family. You know, just, you know, there's so few even family films these days that I think are actually family friendly. And this one is completely that. And so I 
really enjoyed it. I loved watching it. My wife and I had a great time uh, being able to watch it together the other night. And, you know, I think this is also a worthy follow-up to the original film. I think it does create a wonderful duology, and I think it does that by mirroring um, and not being the same thing. And so I 100% would recommend anybody check this out over the holiday season, especially as we're recording this. We're heading into Thanksgiving and then right into Christmas. And so this is a great movie to sit down and watch with the entire family or people that are visiting. And so, uh, but I'm really excited for us to get to our recommendations this week. And so, Scott, you are our visitor. And what would you like to recommend to everybody this week? Well, it's nothing new, uh, but I've been playing catch up with some books, a part of my uh, sci-fi fantasy book club that I'm a part of called Literarily Wasted. <laughs> and one of our... Sorry. Oh, it's great. No, it, I know. Thank you. I appreciate that, Christy. Uh, but a couple of years ago, we read the first book in a trilogy, and the book was called A Darker Shade of Magic. It's really fun. It's by V.E. Schwab, who, if you look up her bibliography uh she just writes bangers it's what she does and i'm reading the third book in the trilogy called a conjuring of light and i would just like to recommend the shades of magic trilogy but also just practically anything that v.e schwab has written she's done a superhero type duology uh called uh the it's the villains duology it starts off with a book called vicious she just had a, a book come out called The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue. It's, she's fun. She writes some really great fantasy, and I would just recommend you check her out. Nice. Yeah, I, uh, I always tell Matt I need to read more books. I'm in trouble right now with one of my volunteers who loaned me one of his books and asks me every time I see him, have you read the book yet? And I'm like, no. <laughs> so I'll, I'll work on it. Uh, I'll add that one to the list. Um, I am actually going to recommend another one of Amy Adams movies. And if you're an Amy Adams fan, you may know exactly which one I'm alluding to. But I mean, maybe not. Um, one of our favorites in this house that she ever did was in a supporting role in a movie from 2010 called The Fighter. Yes. With Mark Wahlberg um, about a boxer. and. Um, it's just a really a really great movie for a lot of reasons, but it's very gritty and also funny in the sense of the family drama and Amy Adams' role that she gets to play in that movie. You've never seen her in such a different role than she plays in Enchanted versus this movie. <laughs> um, but it proves how good she is and that she's such a chameleon. She can become a character, man. So, uh, yeah, I highly recommend if you like um, movies about boxers and um, like Amy Adams that you check out The Fighter because we always enjoy it and have rewatched it. So it's coming back soon. That's weird. I'm more of a movie guy about briefs. So Oh. <laughs> oh what about okay. boxer anyway, briefs? So you- dun dun <laughs> Anyway, um, <laughs> sorry, that was a terrible joke. Um, I'm going to recommend to everybody uh, that you go see The Menu, uh, starring Nicholas Holt, as well as Anna Taylor-Joy and Ray Fiennes. It's so good. Uh, I, it's a movie. Cosign. 
yeah cosine i i i enjoyed this movie so much and it had me thinking so much i had to write a review on it and i hadn't written a review on my actual blog since star wars episode nine. Oh lord uh, so that shows you how much this movie had me thinking and i really really enjoy it it's wickedly devilishly fun and so i highly recommend going to check this out because oh my gosh it just it really is um it's it's perfect satirical dark comedy um and it is lambasting you know our society in in many important ways so i i think it's it it's funny it's worth seeing it's great so go check it out but scott we're always glad to have you back where can everybody find you if they want to catch up with you and see what you got going on well, of course, you can find me on Twitter at ScottDC27. You can listen to my podcast, the DC Squadcast, wherever podcasts can be found. We're on Vero, Facebook, and YouTube with the entire network of shows at SquadcastMedia.com. And you can also check me out every Sunday night at 9 o'clock Central live at the Film Junkie YouTube channel, where we're talking about every episode of Batman the Animated Series on our show, Batman the Fanimated Stream. Thank you so much for gracing us with your VIP presence this evening. Well, I had to come to Andalasia. <laughs> you mean Monrole Asia? <laughs> that was a weird change, wasn't it? Um, that was very yeah. weird. It was yeah. a choice. But no, seriously, so glad to have you back. And um, my list is not quite as long, um, but I uh, really enjoy, obviously, co-hosting this show with Matt and when I'm not here, uh, you can find me on social media at Bespin Bell, as usual, and also in the Babel Conference on Facebook. And uh, I did a finished show called Sabers and Spells with my friends Amanda and Teresa on this Skywalking Through Neverland network. And, you know, we'll see what else is coming down the pipeline soon. But I did do a show with you, Scott, recently. You were so kind to ask me to come on your show, Scott's Shots, for your Patreon page. So uh, if anyone's not a Patreon of Scott's and wants to subscribe, uh, help them out, and also listen to that episode where we talk about Henry Cavill, it's a treat. It was a treat having you on there. Oh, thank you so much. Wow. Uh, goodness. Talking about Henry Cavill, I'll bet that was an incredible time and i'm really sad that i wasn't invited but anyway if uh, you want to find me uh you can find me all over the place uh under the name matt rushing zero two all over social media because there seems to be a new social media platform every day these days um uh, and i'm on a lot of them under the name matt rushing zero two uh you can also find me here on the network doing a bunch of shows outside the 602 club you'll find me doing warp five about star trek enterprise the Orb about Star Trek Deep Space Nine, Literary Treks about the books and the comics of Star Trek, Saddle Up about Star Trek Strange New Worlds, and The Artificial Tango about Star Trek Picard. You'll find me over on the Nerd Party Network with a couple of shows. One I did with Drea Kaufman called Owl Post. We talked through every single chapter of the Harry Potter series one chapter at a time. And last but not least, you'll find me on Aggressive Negotiations with the great John Mills. And as we're recording this, we've just celebrated... Our latest Thanksgungan, where we talk about all of the things that we are thankful for in Star Wars this year. But thank you so much for joining us. And be even more enchanting.
Thank you.